Today we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 20. And I want to ask you, have you read Genesis 20? If you receive my weekly email updates on Thursday, you know that recently we've been encouraging you to read the chapter that we're going to be looking at prior to service. So I hope that you've done that. If not, next week, I hope that you read Genesis 21. So as we get to Genesis 20, I want to say, first of all, great job to Pastor George and Pastor Elizabeth over the last two weeks. And you will know if you listen to last week's message that Pastor George preached out of chapter 19, which talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his daughters. And I loved what Pastor George said or what he did when he referred to the 19th chapter as being the poster child, if you will, of God's judgment and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if you go ahead one chapter to Genesis 21, we're going to get to that next week, and I'm excited to let you know that one of our student ministry pastors, Pastor Joe Oliver, is going to be teaching on that next week. And so while chapter 19 is the poster child for God's judgment to the wicked, Genesis chapter 21 is the poster child of the fulfillment of God's promise, because Isaac is finally born to Sarah and Abraham. So you have the poster child for God's promise and the poster child for God's destruction. But in the middle today, we're talking about Genesis 20. So as I said, chapters 19 and 21 of Genesis, they display both God's judgment upon the wicked and his fulfillment of the promises to the faithful. Yet, Right smack dab in the middle is a story that reveals what happens when sin and God's chosen people collide. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, there's a reason why this episode is recorded right here in Scripture rather than at some other point in the Bible. It is placed here because it is a deliberate parallel to the evil incidents involving the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the inappropriate and sad events of Lot and his daughters, which are all revealed in this previous chapter, Genesis 19. Sometimes when we are talking about the path of obedience and the path of disobedience, we tend to get carried away and overstate our case implying perhaps that the one who is determined to obey God inevitably goes on from faith to faith and hardly ever sins. However, the Bible is way too honest for that. Although it accurately shows the downward spiral path of sin, as the case with Sodom, Gomorrah, Lot, and his daughters, it also shows faithful followers of God in their weakest of moments. You see, the truth is, God's faithful sometimes fail. While you and I have been learning and we continue to learn what it means to walk by faith, while we understand it is our faith that puts us in right standing with God, we must also recognize the battle we continue to fight against sin in our own personal lives. 
when that battle, this battle of sin is lost, it is, its impact is enormous. The impact is not only enormous to ourselves, to the ones we love, and to our future, but it also impacts the kingdom of God. Genesis 20, that we're going to find out today, it reveals what happens when the faithful fall. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this opportunity today when we can open your word to look at the life of Abraham, this journey that you took him on. And I'm thankful today that we can learn from Abraham and Sarah's life and that your word will work in our hearts. It'll change our thinking and it'll make us more like you. Let that be the case today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before I begin here. I, I know that you saw this prop that is right here on this table beside me. So I'm going to wait to the very end. I just want to acknowledge it, but you're going to have to stick with me through the next 25, 30 minutes to find out how that applies to Genesis 20. So if you have your Bibles or your phone or your iPad there and you want to open it up to Genesis 20, I would encourage you to do so. And rather than reading the entire text, I just want to paint this picture and get us all on the same page and give you a recap of Genesis 20. So Genesis 20, Abraham deceives a king named Abimelech. So let's look at the story together. If you want to follow through in chapter 20, you can do that. So after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, the Bible says that Abraham moved south. Him and Sarah moved south to a portion of the country that was called Gerar. Now we learned later that Gerar is where the Philistines came from. And in this territory, there was a king there. It was ruled by King Abimelech. So here's what happens. Sarah and Abraham and the household of Abraham and Sarah move down to Gerar. And like before, which we'll talk about in a minute, Abraham deceives Abimelech. And he tells Abimelech and the people that his wife Sarah is really his sister. He deceives him. And if you know the story that he did that as well in Genesis chapter 12. So Abimelech takes Sarah into his household. Now, in the middle of the night, God comes to Abimelech in a dream. And God says to this king, you are a dead man for that woman that you have taken is already married. Now, Abimelech had not slept with Sarah yet. And so he responds to God by saying, wait a second, I acted in complete innocence. God, would you really destroy me? Would you really destroy an innocent nation? He even says in verse five, he goes, I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. So God responds in verse six and he goes, Abimelech, I know that you are innocent. That's why I kept you from violating Sarah. And then God says, the next day, as quickly as you can, I want you to return Sarah to her husband, Abraham. And then this is awesome. He says, Abraham, yeah, the guy who deceived you, he's my spokesperson. He is a prophet and he's gonna pray for you. 
So the Bible says in verse 8 that Abimelech got up early the next morning and he quickly called his servants together and he returns Sarah to Abraham. And then there's this confrontation between King Abimelech and Abraham. And Abimelech confronts Abraham and the Bible says, what have you done to us? He demanded, what crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this? He says, no one should ever do what you have done. And then in verse 10, he says, whatever possessed you to do such a thing, Abraham. And I love Abraham's response. In verse 11, Abraham replies, I thought. Those are the first two words the Bible says, I thought. That was the beginning of Abraham's problem. And he says, I thought this was a godless place. And so Abraham's concerned, just as he was in chapter 12 when he went to Egypt, that they were going to see Sarah and they would kill Abraham to take his wife. So the story continues. And then Abraham gives a gift to Sarah and Abraham to says, hey, I'm innocent of this. So I'm going to give you these gifts. And then as God said, Abraham prays for King Abimelech because when that had happened, they were unable to have children. King Abimelech's wife and his household, the Bible says, they were unable to have children. So here Abraham prays for King Abimelech. And what does he pray for? He prays that they would not be barren and that they would be able to have children. What's the promise that God was giving or said he would give to Abraham and Sarah is that they would have children and they haven't. It is so unique. And that's the story that happens in Genesis 20. So there are three characteristics of Abraham's deception, of Abraham's sin that I'd like to highlight today. And in doing so, it's going to help us in our journey of walking by faith and in dealing with our own sin and our own shortcomings. Three things. Here's the first. We as Jesus followers are not exempt from sinning, though our consequences are far greater. Now, let's go through the basics of this for a moment. Hopefully we understand that sin is any thought, word, or action that is contrary to the character or the law of God. We all sin, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Hopefully we understand that. And even what we consider good deeds are often tainted by our own selfish motives or pride. Left to ourselves, it's impossible to plead God or to be completely free from sin. When we come to Christ by faith and we trust him to forgive and to cleanse our sin, we are in that moment born again. John 3, 3 talks to, talks to us about that. And that new birth in the spirit results in a new creation. God gives the repentant sinner a new heart that is now turned toward obeying and pleasing him rather than self. We were formerly slaves to sin, but now the Bible says in Romans 6, 16, we are slaves to righteousness. Sin's control in our life has been broken by the power of Jesus. However, we still battle on a day-to-day basis with living in the flesh versus living in the spirit. And the flesh is prone to want what it wants. I love how Paul writes in Romans 7. 
he admits this battle between flesh and spirit. You'll recognize this verse when he writes, I have discovered the principle of this life, that what I want to do is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Paul says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin and that sin is still within me. Each battle of temptation is won or lost based upon how we are fully surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit. John, the Apostle John, writes about this in his first letter. Now understand that 1 John was written to Christians. It was written to the early church. And here's what he says. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. If we claim to have no sin. Remember he's writing to the Christian church. If we claim we have no sin. We are only fooling ourselves and not living in truth. But if we confess our sins. To him he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And to cleanse us from all wickedness. It's clear from this passage in 1 John that even those who have been born again and redeemed by the blood of Jesus will still sin. Throughout thought, attitude, or action, we will grieve and sometimes quench the Holy Spirit at times. But this passage also reassures us that God offers continual ongoing grace whenever we agree with him about our sin and we ask for his cleansing. So what can we say about Abraham's sin to Abimelech? What can we say about this deception? It was cowardly. It was deliberate. It was dishonest. It jeopardized Sarah's purity. It actually even jeopardizes the promise. Think about this. Had King Abimelech slept with Sarah the very next chapter when Isaac is born, the question over who is the father would have been asked. So God here protects the promise and he protects Sarah. It misled an innocent man. King Abimelech, though he wasn't a follower of Christ, and was ungodly, he was innocent. Abraham deceived him. Abraham dishonored God. And last, we can say that through Abraham's sin and through Abraham's deception, it destroyed Abraham's testimony. Now that last point deserves a little bit of our attention today. No doubt God could have used Abraham as a witness in Gerar if he had only told the truth. But because he lied, he not only lost his testimony, he lost an opportunity to witness for the Lord. Consider this statement here just for a moment. When good people do wrong, they do worse harm than when bad people do wrong. Now, why is that true? Well, it's true because we expect bad people to act bad. We expect fools to be foolish. The, we expect the ungodly to be ungodly. So when they do wrong, we're really never surprised. In fact, we're surprised when ungodly people do good. But the world expects Christians to have higher moral standards, and they should. They expect us to live differently than they do, and we should. When we don't, though, 
We hurt the cause of Christ and drive men and women away from the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul, he writes about this in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Actually, very much like the apostle John in 1 John. He writes at the very beginning of his letter in Ephesus. He says, I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. This is who that letter is written to. And then he says in chapter four, verses one through three, he says, therefore, I am Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord. He says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. And he says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together in peace. Now imagine today for just a moment, if Paul had written that letter and he said, I'm writing to God's holy people at ACAC. I'm writing to you at ACAC, you faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And he challenges us today to live a life worthy of your calling. If he was writing that letter to you and I personally, and he says, always be humble, always be gentle, always be patient with one another because of love, make allowances for each other's fault. Now, what's the opposite of humility? What's the opposite of gentleness, of patience, and of love? It's sin. It's pride. It's being harsh. It's hatefulness. It's being cruel. It's being agitated. It's being intolerant. And so I ask you today, when we respond, and and I challenge you today, that when we respond either to a pandemic, either to racial injustice, to the political polarization of this world, to conspiracy theories, to people who believe differently, when we respond in pride, when we respond in being harsh or cruel or intolerant, and when we sin, our testimony is damaged. When we sin, your testimony is damaged and we hurt the cause of Christ and we disgrace the kingdom of God. Our sin has great consequence to our testimony. Here's the second point. We as Jesus followers may struggle in some areas of our lives till the day that we die. This was not the first time that Abraham had lied about Sarah being his sister. I mentioned it before, but you'll remember in Genesis 12, he did the same thing after leaving the land of Canaan due to a famine and he headed south to Egypt. And it's actually possible that it was a regular lie he told when traveling. As we learned in Genesis 20, verse 13, he actually tells King Abimelech that this was an agreement he and Sarah made back when they initially left their homeland of Haran. Yes, through God's grace, you and I may see wonderful victories won in our struggle with sin. Some sins will be conquered. Thank God for that. We can grow in the grace of God by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And it is certainly true that we will see some measure of spiritual victory as we day-to-day battle against sin. Yet having won the victory against some particular sin, we must never come to the place where all of a sudden we think, I will never be tempted 
to do that again, lest we become prideful. Paul writes of that when he says, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different than from what others experience. You see, while we may struggle with particular sins through our time here on earth, our Father has given us His Spirit to help us in this battle. Sanctification is what it's called. It's a gradual process by which we are made more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And as we become more and more conformed to His image, our awareness of our sin should increase, not decrease. This happens because sin is not just something we do, it is something within us. Our natures are so utterly fallen, so deeply corrupted, that in this life, we're never going to arrive at a state state of perfect holiness. It's true that through our union with Jesus Christ, the righteousness righteousness of God has been imputed to us. It's also true that in Jesus we are sanctified. But this work, though begun at the moment of us becoming saved, sanctification begins at the moment of conversion, but it's continued throughout the Christian life and it's never completed until we arrive in heaven. Understand this today. You will never rise to the place where you are no longer tempted by sin, but you will never fall so far that grace can't bring you back. Despite Abraham's deceit, God shows grace. God protects Sarah and he never cancels his promise with them. Look at the amazing grace that God displayed when Abimelech learned the truth about Sarah. He must have thought Abraham was a coward. He must have thought he was hypocritical, two-faced, and far worse. And he had every right to think that. But this is not how God responded or how God spoke about Abraham. God actually tells Abimelech in verse 7, he says, Now return the woman to her husband and he will pray for you. For he, Abraham, is a prophet. God wasn't indifferent to Abraham's sin. He would deal with it as he had on the occasion when he went to Egypt and lied. But the sin that Abraham committed did not change God's view of Abraham. Abraham was still a prophet. Abraham was still a spokesman for God. Abraham was still God's man. Not once in all of scripture is Abraham's progress in the life of faith. Does God ever refer to his past sins as if to shame Abraham? It was forgiven and gone. And it was forgotten. I love this quote from F.B. Meyer, who is a pastor. Bear with me, but listen to this quote. He writes, it would almost appear as if the spirit of God took delight in showing that the original texture of God's saints was not higher than that of other men, nor indeed so high. What they became, they became in spite of their natural selves. So marvelous is the wonder-working power 
of the grace of God that he can graft his rare fruits on the wildest of stocks. He, God, seems to delight to secure his choicest results in natures which men of the world might reject as hopelessly bad. He demands no assistance from us. So sure is he that when once faith is admitted as the root principle of character, all things will be added to it. We do not deny the inconsistencies of David, of Peter, or in Abraham. But we insist that those inconsistencies were not the result of God's work, but in spite of it. Genesis 20 is this beautiful reminder that God's chosen are not perfect people. And in spite of our failures, in spite of our letdowns, in spite of our sin, he chooses to use you and I for his purposes and for his kingdom. Here's the last point. We as Jesus followers are directly affected by our thoughts and view of God. Look at, if you will, Genesis 20, verses 9 through 11. Then Abimelech called for Abraham. And he said, what have you done to us? He demanded, what crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of this great sin? He continues, King Abimelech does, no one should ever do what you have done, Abraham. Whatever possessed you to do such a thing? I read it earlier. His response, Abraham's response was, I thought this is a godless place. They will want my wife and they will kill me to get her. You see, the cause of Abraham's sin, the cause of his deception here in chapter 20 was simply a lack of faith in God. He didn't believe that God could take care of him in this new situation. When Abraham began to doubt God, thinking less of him than he should have thought, his view of himself, Abraham, was altered and his view of God was altered. For he began to think more of himself than what was right and less of God. Listen to this carefully. So long as our view of God is up and elevated and we view ourselves as being down, God will be sovereign, God will be wise, and God will be holy. We will see ourselves, though, as weak, as foolish and sinful, which is true. But if our view of God goes down so that he becomes less than sovereign in our thinking, then our view of ourselves will go up and we will begin to imagine that we generally are quite able and capable of taking care of ourselves. This is what Abraham imagined. Thinking that God could not take care of him, he assumed he would have to step in and take care of things himself. And that's what caused him to sin. Want to give a big shout out to Matt Black on our staff here. He handles our audio. He made this prop for me today and it's gonna illustrate to us what an improper view of God does to ourselves and those around us. So as I just mentioned, God in us, this is a proper view of God. When we see God elevated as being sovereign, as being all-knowing, all-trustworthy and wise, righteous and holy, 
We imagine ourselves and we have a proper view of ourselves as being weak and foolish and needing to lean on God for that understanding. And we recognize us as sinful. But here's what happens. And here's what happened to Abraham when we have an improper view of God. When we don't trust and we think that God is not trustworthy, that he's not all-knowing, that he can't handle the situation that we're in, that he's not sovereign, all of a sudden we have an elevated, prideful view of ourselves, where we believe we have to step in and we have to fix things. And our view of ourselves wrong and our view, our view of God is wrong. What's also interesting is that When this is the case, when this is out of line, out of whack, not only is our view of God and ourself wrong, our view of other people is wrong. Abraham came to King Abimelech and he thought less of him. He said, this is a godless place. He automatically assumed the worst of King Abimelech. Why? Because his view of God was wrong. But instead, hopefully you and I today understand that through Abraham, We need to see God as being sovereign, high and lifted up, wise, righteous, and holy. The all too familiar A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says it probably best. He writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. He continues and says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So as we close today, remember what Abraham's deception of King Abimelech teaches us. It teaches us one that we're gonna slip up and the consequences of our sin, the consequences of our mistake have an enormous impact on our testimony and the, and the world around us. But you're not defined by those mistakes. Two, there are simply some areas of sin that you and I may wrestle with for the rest of our life here on earth. And the first key to addressing those sins is abiding in Jesus daily. It's understanding that our sanctification is progressive and it's a continual act where we need to go before the Father every day. The second key leads me to the third point is that our thoughts and our view of God, they directly affect ourselves and of others. He's sovereign, he's wise, he's holy, he's righteous. We're weak, we're foolish, and we're sinful.
Let's pray. Father, I pray for us in three distinct ways today. One, I pray that you would protect our testimony. We recognize that we are broken, sinful people. And that while we are made righteous in you, we still fall and make mistakes. I pray, though, when that happens, that you would deal with us, you would convict us, that we would run to the cross and repent, and that we would represent you and your kingdom well. Protect our testimony. I pray today that you would help us for those that have this continual fighting of certain areas in their life, their private life, these private areas of sin that don't seem to be going away. They can't seem to get complete victory over. I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and protect, put men and women around them and in their life that would hold them accountable, that you would deal directly with us in those unique areas. And last but not least, keep our view of you high. Let our thoughts be to you the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-righteous God. Because when we do that, we will recognize that we're weak, we're frail. And as Paul said, we don't do what we want to do because there's this sin that lives and fights within us. Guide us today. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. God bless you.